Thank you, Andrew Sun, for joining us today. I'm Sienna Forrest, and I've got my partner, Tina Christensen. We're the founders of Oops Minnesota. Uh, Andrew, I'm just going to give a little background about him. He enjoys a varied career as a performing artist and an arts administrator, so that means he is organized. Uh, he is currently the executive assistant to the president of Minnesota Opera, and he was also a resident artist with Minnesota Opera for the past two seasons. Um, he's a collaborative pianist and a coach and has a very impressive resume. Some highlights include being on the staff at the Berkshire Opera Festival and the Manhattan School of Music, as well as winning the 2018 Marilyn Horn Song Competition with Kelsey Lauritano. That's my attempt at her last name. The tour, um, they toured it around the United States and the world. They went to New York City, Chicago, Santa Barbara, and London in the UK. And my first question is, why didn't you perform it in the Twin Cities? <laughs> well, first of all, Sienna, thank you. Thank you and to, to Tina as well for having me here today. It's really such a pleasure to speak with both of you. Um, you know, that really wasn't um, part of the equation at the time, I suppose. Uh, it was sort of a predetermined prize package. Um, um, and I'm, I'm sure had had I known, you know, with some more lead time, we would have tried to, to get a Twin Cities venue, because I, I know there's certainly interest and hunger for that kind of music here. So perhaps for the future, something to look at. Very much so, I think. So how did you get started down the career path of being a collaborative pianist? Well, like everybody um, in this field, we all started off as solo pianists. Um, oftentimes an undergraduate, um, you know, there's the saying, you got to learn how to play the piano before you can, you know, do other things. And that's, that's what I did. I, I actually started my career um, at NYU um, in the music business program, because I sort of always had a, a mind towards uh, administrative sides of things, as well as the artistic sides. I did that for about two years, and I realized, you know, I'm spending most of my time playing the instrument anyway. I might as well finish out the rest of the program playing the instrument. So uh, that was a easy choice for me to make. Um, and so, you know, that was my undergraduate. My graduate studies were also in solo piano as well. But by that by that point, I had sort of uh, taken an interest in the vocal repertoire and in opera. Uh, starting about my junior year, um, song repertoire classes were offered, and I took them in all the languages and loved every minute of it. God forbid anybody should have had to put up with my collaboration back then before I knew anything, but, um, you know, it's you learn a little bit more every day, and um, one day you sort of wake up and say, yeah, I think I got this. <laughs> Although I, 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 those days don't happen so often these days much, but they... <laughs> definitely not now. <laughs> definitely not now. No, it's uh, these days you wake up and think I'm up. That's that's an accomplishment already. <laughs> yes. So then you started as a solo pianist, yep. got interested in business, and then you discovered art song. And what was it about art song that appealed to you? Well, I loved the fact that um, it was repertoire conceived for voice and piano. The piano wasn't trying to be anything else. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're playing an opera reduction, you're trying to imitate the sound of a 30, 40, sometimes 100 piece orchestra. And this was music that was written for me. And I, I really felt very um, attached to it in that way. And the added dimension of having words and poetry that you get to discuss with a partner and um, make interpretive decisions uh, based on that was just really novel for me at the time and uh, was something that I wanted to do much, much more. And 
you know, you get the added benefit in a song recital, you're never alone backstage. That's really true. And that's beautiful. I hadn't thought about that as art song is really conceived for duos. And, mm -hmm. you know, you get in the opera rehearsal room and you're not really considering that a lot of those reductions are not made even for your hands well. Right. But um, when a composer was writing these art songs, they were doing it specifically for you. And it gives you so much more to pull from when you do have the poetry and the vocal line. Absolutely. And I, I think it's, it's important to remember that most of the, our greatest song composers were pianists first mm -hmm. and, and um, many of them probably didn't sing very well or you know maybe worked with wonderful singers but didn't maybe have that capability um so yeah it, i think it's it's a very natural pairing and um i always felt at home doing it and then where did opera come in uh and the opera came in of course by virtue of working with song singers of course you have to play the occasional or you know several arias and um that sort of came to me a little bit less naturally, I would say, hmm. uh, because I didn't grow up listening to a lot of opera. Uh, I was definitely more of a symphony and chamber music kind of guy. I think I remember my first opera performance that I saw live was a production of Aida at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center. I, I grew up in New Jersey in the Garden State, where, um, as they say in this congeniality, the oil and petrochemical refinery state, which is not entirely untrue, depending on which parts you drive through. I, I was always very taken by the theater arts and how everything comes together. I, I think it's it's fascinating to me that what you see on stage, you know, five, ten people, even with the full chorus, is only a small fraction of what's happening. You know, you have all the people backstage working to make all the gears turn and the curtains fall and rise in the right place. You have stage management, making sure everybody is where they need to be. Um, and not to mention, you know, the set designers, the builders, everything, costumes, it's just, it's mind boggling how all of that comes together. And I, that's really what I loved about it. I think my favorite part of being in an opera productions, and I probably like this more than playing art songs, is that um, there is just that wonderful sense of community. There, there's really nothing quite like the whole process of making the performance happen. And because more often than not, I'm not involved in the performance, that's when I can sort of take a break and enjoy everything. Um, all the work happens in the weeks and months before that. I just have to jump in here and say that um, <laughs> you were talking about how art song is made for the piano and it's not pretending to be anything else. Whereas when you're playing an orchestral reduction for an opera, you are playing the entire orchestra. But if anybody can make that feel like a natural art song written specifically for piano, it's you. And I say this because the first time we ever worked together, it was on it was on a Puccini. And I remember just sitting back and watching you play that score. And I just had to walk up and high five you after. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, 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 I do. I do remember. It, that was La Ronde Day, I believe. Yeah, yeah. It was just some of the most graceful Puccini reduction playing. It, you're just you're so beautiful to watch. It just ugh. yeah, it's a you know playing reductions is a special art by itself. Um, and you know there are many schools of thoughts about this. Um, we could go on for you know a whole series of podcasts on playing piano reductions. I would say it's not of interest to a lot of people, but hopefully some might might find it fascinating. And it's one of those things where you you have to kind of straddle two worlds. You have to first of all, you have to be a pianist because I, I think if you if you try to play things exactly as the orchestra plays them, that doesn't always achieve the effect of the orchestra. So it's often straddling two worlds. You have to be pianistic and you also have to have an ear for what the orchestra sounds like. And especially you have to have an ear for what the orchestra sounds like 
to the singers on stage. Because where, you know, my role is, is instrumentals, you know, pardon the pun, is it, it helps you on stage have an idea of what to expect when you sit down with the orchestra for the first time. Um, and when you're doing the Zitz Probe, when you're, you know, seated on stage and singing your parts and hearing the sound from the pit the first time, there's a certain timbre and color that you just don't get from when you're right next to them or in front of them in a concert setting. Mm -hmm. And you suddenly realize what you have to do with your 10 fingers to make that happen. And it's incredibly instructive. The first time I was actually able to um, participate in a Zitz Probe from the stage as a singer, not singing, but just observing. I, it was very instructional for me to, to hear, oh yeah, um, you guys are really flying blind. <laughs> yeah, not to mention also the delay between the delay. When you're actually hearing something and when you have to sing to be with something. It's, yeah. it's a weird adjustment, but it's nice that we have tech rehearsals to get in the swing of things. And exactly. hopefully a wonderful pianist like yourself in the weeks leading up to it, so it's an easier transition. Because you considering those things makes it easier for the singer. Yep, that's the job. That's what we do. And do you prefer that term collaborative pianist? You know, I actually just prefer pianist because um, I, I think in uh, in few other instruments, in few other cases, do we actually have specific terms applied to what you do? I, I play the piano, I'm a pianist. That's just how I see it. Being a pianist means knowing A, how to play by yourself and also how to work with other people in various settings, be it chamber music, whatever, what have you, opera pianists, bar pianists, all those things. Like, I, I feel like we all sort of need to wear all those hats. And th to me, there is no word except pianist that describes what we do. Well, we all know that this is a really tough career. What is it that keeps you motivated and, and pursuing it? I would say um, for motivation, it's, um, it's really the people. I, I really think it's the people. Um, I, I wouldn't do it for any other reason. As I said before, the, the feeling of being part of this, you know, grand production with all these moving parts and and how everybody plays an important role and brings a personality to it. And even, no matter how technical your job is, you know, your, your job could be just to sweep the floor after everyone's done. But without that, you know, things couldn't happen safely. And, you know, I think everybody just needs to sort of appreciate that for a moment, like everybody has a role to play in these productions and every role is important. There is no such thing as a small role in opera, literally and figuratively. And that really gets me going is being able to walk into the room of a new production with new conductor, new singers. Um, there's something very electric about it and that really does get me going. Um, and of course the music, I mean, what's not to like about it? <laughs> Have you worked on a show that you did not like the music of? I think we can all safely say that we've all done that at some point. But you know, it's interesting because what you feel in the moment is not often how you felt about it in the weeks leading up to it or in the weeks after the show closes. Um, and a big part of that is because of the experience of mounting a show, I think can definitely color your um, opinion of the music. And so I think it's really hard to evaluate that completely objectively, you know, maybe take five, 10 years later and, and go back to it and see what you think. But there are, there's always something I find to like about everything. And this isn't just me trying to be diplomatic. I, I, I really think this is true. I, I, I think um, working on really anything for the first time is exciting. You know, trying to crack the language because you have to take, 
you know, the composer, the librettist, you know, at their word. If if they felt this was worth writing and presenting, you have to learn to understand it. I think it's incumbent on you to do that. I don't think it's necessarily incumbent on them to make you understand it. Um, it there are many different musical languages, as we know, around the world and even within the world of opera. And I think it behooves us to sort of understand those languages and uh, sort of expand our idea of what music can be. So, you know, there, there are things where in the moment I, I might hate the process because it's incredibly complicated music, but then, you know, five weeks later when everything is set and you have it in your ears, you have it in your fingers and everything, and it's in your bodies, and then you're like, oh yeah, this was easy. Why did I ever think this was difficult? <laughs> and then you're just walking down the street and you're humming the melodies and you're like, yep, yeah, life is good. That reminds me of Rostropovich, the great cellist. He, there was one point where he had fallen out of favor with the Soviets and they thought to insult him by sending him to some like country bumpkin orchestra to be the music director. And he took to it like it was the most important thing he ever did. And he said, there's no such thing as music that isn't worth it. And I try to find this approach in myself all the time. And sometimes it's hard. And it seems like you have found that balance. And I really admire that. Well, you know, we're all human. And, you know, there are, there are definitely days where I'm like, do I really want to do that today? And that's okay. You have to just sort of let that feeling sit and it'll pass. I mean, it's in the grand scheme of things, they're, they're all very small ideas, you know, especially if, if you're thinking about the big picture and the kind of life you want to live with music and the arts. It sounds too like the important thing is to stay curious, yes. inquire, and if you find yes. yourself forming an opinion, be curious about it. What is it that makes you feel that way? Is there a way you could change that or look at it in a different way? I know for me personally, a lot of my thinking lately has been, what have I made up my mind about? And I, I when I hit those moments, I question myself. I'm like, why have I made up my mind? What's the counter to this? Especially po politics. I don't want to get involved in that. But um, when things are so divided, I think it's important that you do question what you have built a wall against and mm. decide if that should even be there. Yeah. No, curiosity is a great word. I um, I spent a few a few years uh, playing for uh, Catherine Malfitano's studio in New York. And, you know, of course, the legendary soprano and, you know, every day, every lesson, curiosity came up and she took that very personally and to heart and just trying to instill that sense in all of her students. And it was it was really very inspiring to watch. Can you tell us a little bit about the repertoire that you worked on with Corissa Bushin? Sure. Um, we worked on, uh, we rec recorded uh, three songs of Strauss which are his three Ophelia songs based on the character from Shakespeare's Hamlet. Um, they're, of course, in German, so it's a German translation of the Shakespeare text. So, you know, quite a few degrees of separation, right? You have you have the, the translator's uh, version of the Shakespeare, and then, of course, on top of that, you have Strauss's version on top of the translator. Kind of an interesting construct to, to when, you, when you think about it. You're really seeing those words through several lenses mm -hmm. at that point. And then we recorded two songs of Kelly Krebs, who is a, uh, a I guess you could say, local Minnesota composer, <clears throat> text by Robert Heaton, who is also a local uh, poet. All five pieces were, I, I would say, um, a, a, first of all, just crazy in their own um, kind of way. Um, it was all new music to me, and I think it was all new music to Carissa as well. Uh, I mean, Ophelia, uh, need I say more? I mean, 
just if you if you know the story of Hamlet um, already conjures some very dark images of insanity and and very very um, deep mental conflict. What I like to think is that all five of these songs recorded, whether it be the Strauss or the Krebs, they were all very um, psychological. Um, the music didn't necessarily always support the words in the best way, and that's not a criticism that I love against either composer because, you know, if we look at any song of Franz Schubert, most of them were set quite poorly, in fact, uh, very against the rhythm of the language. But the music uh, revealed the psychology of the poetry, and I think for many listeners that is by far more interesting than good text setting. I mean, I use that term very lightly because beauty's in the eyes of the beholder, of course. Mm -hmm. But they were an absolute joy to work on and record and complex in their own special ways, uh, rhythmically, harmonically. Um. I think all of the music is worthy of multiple listens because you can gain so much on each of the repetitions. Mm -hmm. And I love the two sets together. I didn't think I would so much, but there's something that is so engaging about it because the Strauss is all over the place i mean for you especially you mentioned during the recording that it was the second piece is the hardest thing you'd ever played yes um possibly um I, I mean accompanied with a singer i mean it's it is it's one of those songs where um you know we, we have we have two hands and ten fingers but i never really quite knew what they were doing at all times <laughs> You know, it's an interesting discussion of what one would consider to be pianistic or idiomatic to the instrument, and that certainly was not in many ways. Um, but that that being said, though, I I, I have found that um, some of the most unidiomatic music actually is some of my favorite. And again, it just it expands your understanding of what is possible at the piano. You know, I mean, if you think about the history of of this instrument, I mean, you know, what Liszt was doing in the 1800s, Bach couldn't have imagined in his wildest dreams mm -hmm. in 16 and 1700s and would have been considered completely anathema to what he was doing. So, you know, I, I think every now and then you have people who come along who really push the envelope of what it means to play this instrument and certainly for vocal writing as well. Oh yeah. And the interplay between the two. Yeah. And I really like the Krebs because um, it, it has a little bit of a musical theater quality in the piano, but the poetry is so engaging. And I thought you guys performed those exceptionally well and it shows what a range you both are capable of thank you yeah i mean uh it's it's very image intensive for both of those poems do you have any projects that you dream about doing perhaps that marilyn horn recital again <laughs> uh that was an incredible recital i know kelsey and i um, are often in conversation about things that we could be doing next and it's complicated by the fact that she's currently uh, one of the uh, best artists with upper frankfurt so um there is obviously the seven, eight hour flight in between us. Believe me, that also made it difficult. We had to rehearse for this recital as well. Oh. And uh, yeah, I, that was my first time in Germany. I actually flew over there to meet her because I was like, hey, I haven't been to Germany. So this sounded like a great chance to do that. Uh, we also especially enjoyed premiering a song cycle of Ricky and Gordon's. And uh, he, he was kind enough to actually work with us on the music. Uh, we met him one very sleepless, um, after a very sleepless night for me, because I had, I think, just flown a red eye or something to, to the city. You know, one session, two hours, we were able to knock out what he sort of wanted. And 
that's what we had to go with because you know we did not have the luxury of infinite time on our hands to put that together but um, I know that he has wanted us to record that cycle for some time and hopefully that can happen in the next few years. Who knows? How did you guys get involved with premiering it? Uh, Ricky was actually one of the uh, judges for the competition. And um, it, it was sort of prearranged that whoever won would uh, premiere a piece of his. So that was sort of part of the agreement. It was the, it was the commissioned piece for the, for the competition. I was going to say, how do you find it? working on pieces by living composers where you get to work directly with the composer. I, I, I think it's the greatest thing. It's the greatest gift because you don't need to, you know, have a 15 minute intellectual discussion about what one smudge of ink on the page means. You can, you know, call them, send them an email and say, hey, what do you mean by that? And they can tell you it's wonderful. <laughs> you think it's a little limiting, though, because then you don't get to make those decisions. Well, at the end of the day, I, I, I still have to make the decision, right? Because they're, they're not playing the music for me. So, you know, I, I think you ask the question for clarification and they give you the answer and you go with it. You can, you, you can choose to follow, ignore or whatever. But generally speaking, I try to follow. <laughs> have you ever blatantly ignored what a living composer has told you? Yeah, I mean, there, there are also moments in that cycle uh, where Ricky literally said, that works in my fingers. I don't know if it works in yours. If it doesn't, you can try something else. And there were moments where I had to do that because, uh, you know, everyone's minds work differently, right? I mean, for, for, for the three of us, you know, we can pour over a line of music, you know, how to execute it technically for days and we'll figure out an answer. But not everybody is so attuned to that, I suppose, we're aware of it. And uh, it's not a bad thing. I think it's just, again, understanding the language and the process. Do you find that performing new pieces that don't have any sort of precedent set for them is a freeing experience? You know, I think the short answer is yes, but I would also say that I've never felt limited by by precedents of old music either. And I think it's, you know, you have to go into everything, you know, new or 500 years old with an attitude of sort of, this is my thing. and. Um, it's my chance to, to, to make something of it. You know, you listen to recordings from the past to, to get ideas. And by all means, I think you should use them. But I've never felt limited by that. I think it's, um, I, still, I, I still find possibility in everything. I love that. As singers, we are told so often, like, this is how this piece is done, or this is how this passage is sung, or this is the cadenza you need to sing because it's tradition and it's expected, or like, there's not a high C written there, but you're going to sing it anyway because it's what the audience expects. And we kind of get limited by precedent in that way. And it's so refreshing to hear that you don't limit yourself to that. I, I mean, I, I really think that kind of attitude from the audience and especially from for younger singers, you know, who are trying to find their voice in this world. I mean, it's, it's really horrible. I think it's actually incredibly self-defeating to say it should be done this way without, you know, realizing that, you know, speaking of cadenzas and ornaments and things we do for music like Rossini, it, it was not because it was done a certain way. It was because a certain singer premiered the music and it sat in their voice better a certain way. I'll never forget, because um, I, at Manhattan School of Music where I studied for a year, I was one of Warren Jones's students. And, you know, we, we had these classes every week where the pianist in his studio would get paired with singers who were selected for the class by audition. 
And we, we talked about ornaments and cadenzas, and he said, look, this, the, all you really have to do is make a list of what you're good at. You know, if you're good at high notes, if you're good at fast notes, if you're good at low notes, whatever, it doesn't matter. You make a list, and then you write your ornaments accordingly. And it makes so much sense because you play to your strengths, right? That's kind of what showing off is all about. You know, it's, it's, it, it can be gratuitous, but that's kind of the point, isn't it? You know, like, why, why show what you can't do? You should show what you can do very well. And I think it's a, it's a question of listening to what your body and what your voice wants to do. And I think the, for opera, for this art form to survive, I think we have to be more artist-centered in that respect. You have, we have to listen to what people want to do and what, what they feel they should be doing. And I think that's how this art form survives. I mean, listen to your artists because they're, they're the ones who, who have to put on all of the emotion and all of the, um, they have to go through the process. You know, it's it's easy to tell someone to do something. It's quite another thing to for that person to do it. What do you think some of your strengths are? It's so much easier to answer the other one, isn't it? The weakness part of it. Yeah, because those things you're always working on. You you glaze yeah, up. Yeah. Tina wrote a blog post about not being able to accept compliments, and I I feel like it's even hard for us to think of things and self congratulate ourselves. Yeah. I, I think I, I would say that probably my level-headedness is a strength for me. Sometimes that can actually get in the way too. When when moments require um, a bit more fiery passion, I think. See, there I go again, being self-critical. <laughs> <laughs> it's inescapable. But yeah, I I, I really think that um, especially if you're engaging in an art form that does require so much emotional output at all times, you know, just being able to take moments to breathe and center yourself and realize why you're doing this is important. I'll also add that you're very positive and flexible. And I think that those are level-headedness, flexible, and positive are the three things I would always look for in a pianist because you keep things on the rail and you're organized. So ding, 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 ding. And your son for the win. I try to be, thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad it's being noticed. Most definitely. What was that, Tina, that you were saying? I said watching you play is like watching ballet. That's so sweet. She should write your bio. You really should, because I, <laughs> I hate writing my own bios. I think we all do. Like, I, I, I think, you know, you know what? That's actually a great idea. I think you should just, everybody just have your best friend write your bio for you, because that's going to, that's always going to be the best version of it, right? I agree. Let's start that campaign. <laughs> like, it's kind of like the, 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 uh, the pay it forward at the McDonald's drive-in. Or those kidney chains where someone gives a kidney to a kidney to a kidney and then they end up having like 62 transplants that end up happening in that chain. So we'll do that with people's bios. Exactly. Um, speaking of issues with our industry, what are some of the perceived problems that you have either experienced or seen? I mean, it's one of those questions of where to begin. I mean, it, it, it's not to say that, you know, I'm not suggesting we're irredeemable. I, I, I think there are many chances to, to make things better. What comes to mind first is probably work-life balance. I think that is a big problem in our industry. You know, this goes for artists, this goes for stagehands, stage management, every, everybody. We're sort of forced into this mindset of having one day off per week and, you know, rehearsing for very intensely for a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. And of course that's efficient because it gets you out of one gig and into the next one sooner. But, you know, I, I just don't think that's a sustainable way to live for a lot of people um, to be on the road constantly. Obviously, for some people, it's the biggest gift because they love it and it gives them 
it gives them uh, fuel to keep going. But at least for me, I think uh, having taken an administrative role in this past year, it's taught me a lot about what that balance can be. And I think why this industry needs so much more of it, because there's no reason why during a production week, somebody should be working 80, 90 hours just to get a show on. It's a hard balance. I don't know if I have the answer to, to fix it, but um, I think there has to be some, some very measurable change happening in that respect. Yeah, it reminds me, I was talking with um, two of my friends, James Barnett and Bergen Baker, who run Loft Recital, and they have done such a wonderful transition to all virtual programming. Um, but before with their season, they would be really busy before the show, and then they could take a couple weeks off afterwards. But now with things being recorded, it's working all the time because there's the recording that's a couple weeks beforehand and then there's the editing of the recording and then there's publicizing it on the internet and then by the time it's premiered they're already recording the next one and yep. it's it is such an up and down industry and i think too there's this emphasis on what are you doing next and there has to be more of an emphasis on wh where you are right now and yeah. so things outside of the gig you know what are you personally working on um I think it can just be toxic because then you feel like your only value is in your next job. Right. And I think this culture gets ingrained at a very young age for a lot of opera singers. Yeah. Um, you know, being in a conservatory where, you know, all of your friends are doing summer programs. What's wrong with taking a summer off and, you know, being a normal college student for once, you know, go home, get a job, work for a few months and come back fresh. There's, there's no harm in doing that. I think what happens is with resumes, especially if you don't tick certain boxes, they won't even consider hearing you. And so there is this constant pressure that you have to be promoting and doing because there are these little things that people are considering that you don't even know is taking you out of the running. Cause that one summer you didn't do something, you know, someone else was at Marilla or Santa Fe or whatever, and, and they just keep inching a little bit ahead. So it's, yeah. I think it's because it's so cutthroat. We don't yeah, feel and, that. And look, I mean, experience is important. There's no question about it. Yeah, yeah. That should be considered when people are reviewing resumes. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think it's incumbent on whoever's reviewing to actually listen to this to the voice. Yeah. After all, that's what this is about, right? I mean, I think sometimes we may, we might lose sight of it. And also, uh, you know, from from the end from the perspective of the artist. Um, being in that moment and under that pressure, you may exaggerate the importance of some of these programs or these gigs, you know, and it's, it's not about chasing that next thing. It's about finding why you love doing this and what gets you going. You know, if, if the industry is what gets you going, then I think you might be doing it for the wrong reasons. <laughs> yeah. And I, as you were saying, this period of self-reflection, it makes me so excited for when things do open up again. Yeah. And also for us with Oops, the idea that people are sitting back and they're wondering what matters to me as an artist and how can I engage my community and how can I, you know, give back and do something more. Um, it's exciting to me to think that once this all returns, we'll have a like renaissance of new Absolutely. art out there. And hopefully, I also hope that people will embrace more non-linear career paths and trajectories in the arts, where it's not just about... I went to school to sing and then now I'm doing this program and that program and now I have a manager and I'm singing at XYZ house. It's uh, that's wonderful if you're if that's how you made it work, but there are other ways to make that work.
and and I, I want I hope I really hope that in sort of the post pandemic world that gets embraced a bit more, you know, frequently, um, you know, the singer who has to take a day job to support their audition expenses, and, you know, just to pay the bills to get from one gig to the next that was often sort of frowned upon, but I hope now people actually embrace that, not because it's the way things should be, but because it is a reality. And, you know, what is an artist's life but living reality, you know, and I think that's something that we should all embrace and, and be comfortable about doing because we all have to make it work our own way. I completely agree. And as somebody who has a muggle job, like, yes, it would be my life would be totally unsustainable without it. But yep. the flip side of that is that the people who hold the power in this industry, the ones who are making the decisions also need to come to that conclusion. It is not just on the artists for that because they're still the ones looking at the resumes and saying, well, this person didn't do a summer program. So I'm going to move on to the person who did. I mean, there, there has to be change at all levels um, for sure for the, for the, for this to work. But I, I think that's coming. I think that's coming. I think so too. And I know that this question is a hard one, um, but we don't expect there to be answers, but we do think that there should be conversations and we should be able to, you know, talk about what we've perceived as issues and also what we've experienced, not to find a solution, but just to hear one another and to, um, I don't want to use the word commiserate, but empathize and have a fuller picture of what a situation really is, as opposed to these, you know, neat little boxes we try to put the world into. Right. So this is going to lead us into our rapid fire question round, and we will try to keep these rapid. Tina and I tend to ask little follow-up questions, but um, we'll do our best. <laughs> Are you ready, Andrew? Uh, I'll be ready as I ever can be, I think. People would be surprised to know that you are blank. <laughs> People would be surprised to know that I actually don't listen to a lot of music in my free time. Tell us more. Oh, I mean, I, I think it's it's only because I work with it so much that in my free time, I want to do something else and, and not be surrounded by that. So that's just me. I, I don't need to listen to music on, you know, when I'm sitting around at home or I'm, I'm on a walk. I usually listen to podcasts, actually. I love those. So, yeah. I'm the same. Hopefully, hopefully you'll take this podcast on your next walk or whatever. Yes. Yeah, so tell us where you're walking right now. Um, oh, where am I? Out loud. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm very fortunate um, that I, I live in the North Loop neighborhood of Minneapolis, and so I'm just a few steps away from the Mississippi, um, and I do that walk down to Stone Arch Bridge probably once every other day. Um, it's just it's beautiful. I never get I never get tired of it. There's always something new to look at, and um, especially this fall when they drained the river, and you could actually just walk onto the riverbed. That was amazing. And I wish they'd do that every year, but that would be unnecessary. Maybe expensive too. Yes, very expensive. Do you have any performance day rituals or routines, or do you remember them? Uh, yes, I usually have to eat a banana before a performance. Is it because it's a beta blocker? You know, I think somebody told me that at one point, and I just put it in my mind that, yeah, that, that makes sense. I should do that. I, I was never one to get, um, you know, debilitatingly nervous, but... Uh, there's something comforting about having a banana before a show. Placebo effect is real. Yeah, that's that's real. legit. Yeah. Um, so what are you doing in the minutes before a performance begins? Well, see, now the next time I go on stage, I'm going to be thinking about what I'm doing. before. 
you'll have to text us and we'll make a post about it. There, there we go. I, I don't know. I think I'm just breathing and, um, and, and I think, you know, it, it's also be, and being excited. It's, it's fun. I actually do like getting out on stage and, and sharing music with people. That's, it's exciting. That's, I certainly don't feel dread doing it. That is a good thing. <laughs> Um, with when COVID restrictions are lifted, it, it's magic. Everyone's been vaccinated. What is the first thing you're gonna do? I'm just gonna hug a stranger, I think, <laughs> with permission, of course. But you know, I, I that's that's the one thing that I think we we've all found a way to do everything else digitally, or you know, safely. You know, we we can still grocery shop. You can still you know get takeout. So like, I, I'm not gonna just go to a restaurant because, you know. That's not that novel, I guess, but I really haven't hugged somebody that is, you know, not in my family uh, where I live with in many months. And I kind of miss that. I mean, the other day I um, uh, met uh, a new um, a handyman in our building and he, you know, was was working on something in the hallway and I introduced myself. He stuck out his hand and I shook it and I was like, wow, that felt really good. Human contact. I, I washed it immediately after, but... <laughs> It was it was a moment of normalcy where like neither of us was really thinking about the ramifications of shaking someone's hand and just simple things like that. I miss that. So watch out when we come back. Andrew's going to be touching <laughs> in a respectful manner. Yeah, the, the permission is key. I like that you said with permission. <laughs> I, I mean, I will I will freely admit I am I am not the most physical person to my friends and strangers. Like I I am not a hugger. I am not remotely that. I know some people who, who love to do that, and I'm just not that kind of person, but I do kind of miss it. It's desperate times, you know, you, yeah. you don't have it. That's when the absence grows, the heart wants I, it. You know, it's, I say that about bagels. I lived almost 10 years in New York. I barely ever had a bagel. Then I moved here and suddenly I wanted bagels all the time. <laughs> Grass is always greener. Yep. And if you could give a duo recital with any artist, living or dead, who would it be? Oh, that's a really good question. Tina's question. Living or dead? That, now that, see, that kind of expands the uh, the choices a bit. You know, for me, it always comes back to Beethoven. Um, he was sort of my my first love as a composer, really, um, from high school and middle school. And I, I would just love to spend an afternoon with him and just chatting and, uh, and yeah, and just playing music with him. You know, it'd be. I think it'd be. It'd be cool to to play like um, you know, a forehand transcription of one of his symphonies with him. I think that'd be amazing. We'll make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> what is one item on your bucket list? You know, this isn't something that I often give a lot of thought to. Uh, you'll have to get back to me on that. I actually don't really know how to answer that. Okay, that's totally fine. What is on your nightstand right now? So I'm actually right next to my nightstand. Um, I have a cell phone charger uh, and a copy of Smithsonian Magazine. Look at that. I like that. that. That just happens to be what's sitting there. You know, my, my boyfriend works in magazine publishing, so we just have a lot of magazines around the house. Oh, very cool. But the Smithsonian was actually a, a, a gift from his parents for, my, for Christmas to me. So I get a whole year of those. What is something that you're proud of? Gosh, these are hard. <laughs> it could be anything from, I think I have nice handwriting to, I played the crap out of that Strauss set. <laughs> I do have nice handwriting, actually. I am kind of proud of that. 
when I when I'm not in a hurry to write something down. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll go with that. Yeah. You'll have to send us some some versions of it, some pretty writing and then some fast writing. I, I there was there was one summer, um, maybe five or six years ago, where I, I was suddenly obsessed with it. And I actually sat down and practiced. And this is, you know, not something that you do uh, any past the age of ten, but for whatever reason, I just felt like learning cursive really well. And yeah, all right, we'll go with that. <laughs> I fed you your proud answer. <laughs> Do you have any advice for your younger self? Ooh, always be grateful for whatever it is you're doing in the moment. Because good or bad, it'll you'll learn from it and you'll appreciate it a few years later. That's beautiful. Yeah, if somebody had told me that, I would have. I think it would have been. I would have had a much easier time <laughs> in my early twenties. <laughs> yeah, I've been trying to remind myself. If I only do this once today, let me be fully present to it. Mm. Just, you know, even handwriting things like you're talking about paying attention to the feeling in my arm and breathing and just fully living in each moment. Because especially with quarantine, you can get stuck in your thoughts because your environment isn't really changing. Mm. Um, so it's important to get, you know, back into your body and into each individual moment. Um, yeah, I think that's really beautiful. And I have loved talking with you, Andrew. You are a fascinating person and so positive. You're wonderful. Tina, do you have any follow-up questions or anything for Andrew? Just do you have a website that you want to share? Any upcoming gigs you want people to know about? Um, I have neither of those things at the moment. <laughs> well, the gigs make sense. The website, you gotta get one, buddy. Yeah, it's never it was never a huge priority for me. Um, but I uh, know you're, you are, you are right. I think I should put something up there. If people want to hear more of your playing, is there a way they could do that? No, well, they'll just have to, um, you know, sing with me or something. <laughs> that is a way to market yourself. Andrew's son is by invitation only. You can reach out and we'll see if he responds. <laughs> okay. Those are your words, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> it has been such a joy talking with you today, Andrew. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.